Listener production. Hello, Tom Tilly with you for The Briefing. It is Tuesday, January 25, and in this episode, we speak to one of the refugees still stuck in the Melbourne Hotel where Novak Djokovic was held. Mehdi Ali has been in detention for, wait for it, nine years. Each day in detention means dealing with complicated thoughts, complicated emotions, and it's really hard. People are suffering here. I'm suffering here. And I can't handle it anymore. Yeah, that heartbreaking interview with Mehdi a little later, as we ask, how can this be happening? The consequences, the human misery arising and suffering arising out of these policies, it's just impossible to measure. And and it has to end. It cannot go on like this. That is our briefing. First, Katrina Blouse is here with you for today's headlines. Well, some huge news. The government has bought the copyright of the Aboriginal flag for $20 million. Now, this makes it free for public use. It allows uh, the Aboriginal flag to breathe a new life in itself. So it becomes definitely in partnership with the Australian flag. And that I love. Yeah, that's the artist Harold Thomas, who created the flag in 1970. And he's retained the copyright since then, uh, meaning up until now, anyone who wanted to use the flag um, had to ask for permission and pay a fee. And copyright issues have started to come up after he sold the use of it to uh, a non-Indigenous company, who then started threatening legal action against the NRL and AFL for using the flag on uniforms. Yeah, this has caused some real complications. So now Thomas has agreed to give up copyright in return for all future royalties to be put towards the ongoing work of NAIDOC, as well as an annual scholarship for Indigenous students worth $100,000. And Thomas plans to create a $2 million flag legacy not-for-profit to support Indigenous people. Yeah, he seems like a really interesting guy. He's got an opinion piece in the newspaper today. Um, He was the first Aboriginal Australian to graduate from an Australian fine arts school. That was in South Australia. And he's written in that piece that he wants the flag to be a symbol of unity and pride. And we mentioned the NRL and AFL wanting to use it on uniforms. Mm. They were wanting to do that for really good reasons, you know, to support the contribution of Indigenous players to those football codes. So complicating that and, you know, potentially dragging that into courts or, or, or really protracted disputes wasn't in anyone's interest except for the people holding the rights. Yeah, interesting that this uh, negotiation has taken two years. Uh, They've reached this figure, which is a pretty hefty sum, Mm. but I'm sure in history will will, um, not not be that much when you consider the advantages to everyone of, uh, of doing it this way. And the worst of Omicron appears to be over for Australia. We are seeing now clear signs that this Omicron wave, at least in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT has peaked. That's Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt there. So forecasters believe that even with this expected surge with schools heading back, that it won't disrupt the overall trend. Yeah, so at its worst, New South Wales was seeing a seven-day average of over 47,000 and that is now down to 28,000 and in Victoria... The peak was at around 40,000 cases a day on January 14. That's now come down, um, it's halved, to 19,000. 
In other states and territories, case numbers are declining as well, except for a few places like Queensland, for example. Uh, the peak is already passed on the Gold Coast, but isn't expected in the rest of the state for another couple of weeks. Also, WA, it's unclear what the figures are doing there. There were 24 cases on Sunday, 13 yesterday. But Tom, uh, you know, with the state locked out to the rest of the country and the world, uh, those figures could change considerably in the next few weeks. Yeah, WA might be on a very different journey to the rest of the country, um, as it always is. But in this case, they might start going up and, and the rest of us are going down. But look, overall, this is obviously the news we, we wanted to hear. I would yeah. say in Sydney, it does feel more relaxed. Like, Oh, um, that's good. Yeah, three or four weeks ago, it was really hectic. And obviously, I, <laughs> I think we got it right at the peak because it just felt like it was everywhere. Um, mm. And now people are sort of starting to go out again and starting to feel more relaxed. Um, so, yeah, we'll keep crossing our fingers. But this is also a global trend as well. So, yeah, a lot of good news there. Well, Australians are being told to leave Ukraine as tensions rise. It follows the US advising their citizens to leave as well. The civilians who, who work embassy um, and US civilians within uh, Ukraine, it's very important that the US government has a plan uh, to help those people uh, get to safety. That's a Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria speaking on CNN. So the US is considering sending as many as 5,000 troops to Eastern Europe, which would be a major step up of the US's military involvement. They're also prepared to send 50,000 troops if circumstances in Ukraine deteriorate. So Russia currently has 100,000 troops at the border of Ukraine, but has repeatedly said it will not invade. Yeah, none of this looks good. It, it, it is the way that wars can start. I'm not saying that it will, and I definitely hope that it won't. Um, but yeah, just continually mounting threats and troops. Mm. It's quite concerning. Something's got to give at some point, right? Mm. Hopefully something diplomatic gives. Well, Julian Assange has had a victory in court. That could mean the UK's Supreme Court will hear his appeal against being extradited to the United States. What happened in court today is precisely what we wanted to happen. The High Court certified that we had raised point of law of general public importance and that the Supreme Court has good grounds to hear this appeal. That's Stella Morris, who is Julian Assange's fiancée and the mother to his children. She was speaking outside the court. So this latest victory means he can ask the Supreme Court for an appeal on whether the High Court was right to accept assurances by the US that were provided in the appeal, um, but it's not about the original extradition hearing. So a district court judge has previously ruled that he should not be extradited to the US because he could take his own life if he was held in extreme prison conditions. But the High Court overturned this after the US government promised the British government Assange would not be held in solitary confinement and could serve out his sentence if convicted in Australia. And the background to all of this, of course, is that Assange is wanted by the US Department of Justice on 18 counts over the leaking of hundreds of thousands of classified cables in 2010. Terence Darrell Kelly has pleaded guilty to the kidnapping of Cleo Smith and he is going to be sentenced now later this year. Yeah, so he's behind bars in a maximum security prison in Perth and he made his plea to the court yesterday, the Carnarvon Court, via video link. Um, he now faces a maximum of 20 years in jail for child stealing. It seems that this was a good outcome for the family yesterday, Katrina. 
Yeah, definitely. So him pleading guilty, that means that the court won't have to call witnesses, which includes the family to the stand. Uh, You can imagine how hard that would be after everything that they've already been through. Um, Also making the healing process a little bit easier for Cleo Smith herself. So it was seen as great news by everyone yesterday. Yeah, and I guess now we're all hanging out for the big um, supposedly $2 million interview on Channel 9 with the family. Uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine. You know, being a journalist, oh, I, I know that cash for comment is just a way of the world now, but how can one interview be worth $2 million? I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what's said. Yeah, well, it goes to a family who've been through a lot, so there's a bit of a feel-good factor there. But yeah, as, yeah. as a young journalist, I used to spend just days upon days calling people, begging them to talk. Um, And that's the way most people do it, but some people have a big checkbook. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you tomorrow for an Australia Day special here on The Briefing. Um, A very interesting interview for you tomorrow, really inspiring, actually. But right now, Jan Fran's about to join us for our interview with one of the refugees still stuck in that Melbourne hotel where Novak Djokovic was held. Okay, let's get deeper into the refugee policy that has left people locked up for as long as nine years. Jan Fran joins us. Jan, this has come to a lot of people's attention because of the Novak Djokovic story. Yeah, absolutely. In a hotel room in that very same hotel where the world number one tennis player Novak Djokovic was staying, there's a 24-year-old man named Mehdi Ali. He's from Iran and he came here via boat at the age of 15. So on this app, you're going to hear his story and we're going to get a deeper look at how this is happening in our country. Mehdi, thanks for joining us there in that hotel room. How long have you been stuck there? Uh, I've been stuck in the hotel room for a few months. And is it true that you don't even have a window to open for fresh air? That's true. Unfortunately, we cannot open the windows in uh, our own rooms. Wow, and can you get outside for a walk to get fresh air at all? We can go to level four, which is the top of the building, and we can get uh, access to the fresh air over there. So, Mary, what's it like essentially living in the Park Hotel at the moment? What sort of conditions are there? Um, I believe the issue is not uh, the quality of the life inside the detentions. The issue is why they're keeping us in detention for nine years although we are refugees and there is no uh, explanation and there's no reasons to keep us uh, any longer here. And that's the issue, you know. Mm. It got the world's attention because Novak Djokovic was staying in the same hotel. Tell us about the journey so far. Where have you spent a lot of your time over the last nine years and, and what's that been like? Well, basically, I've been in detention. I grew up in detention since uh, I was 15 years old. Now I'm 24 years old. I spent almost uh, six years in Nauru. Nauru was dark and cold. And then under the Medivac bill, I came to Australia diagnosed by PTSD. And the cause of my trauma, most of it, it's cause of detention. And uh, I'm still in detention. In unsure. And last two years, since I came to Australia for treatment, which I did not receive any treatment, uh, I was uh, in Brisbane, most of it, and then uh, came to Melbourne. I was in different detention centres, and eventually right now I am in Park Hotel. 
and I'm sick of moving from one cage to another. So, Mehdi, talk us through your current status. My understanding is that you have been formally recognised as a refugee. What does that mean? Well, that means I'm not safe to go back to where I came from. That means that place is not safe for me. I got the refugee status by UN itself. And so where are you going to go from here? Because the policy is so strict that you basically have to accept being in detention, going back to your country, which you can't, as you've just explained, or being resettled in a third country. Is that likely to happen for you anytime soon, to be resettled overseas? There's no deadline. It's been nine years and no one told us when we're going to be free. So that's the thing. We are in indefinite detention, which means I might get out today, I might get out tomorrow, I might never get out. So could you be resettled in the US under that refugee swap arrangement? I mean, uh, the Prime Minister said that he's encouraging us to take the option, the permanent option. I took the option a long time ago, and I'm willing to go, but there's no slide for me. And each day in detention means dealing with complicated thoughts, complicated emotions. And it's really hard. People are suffering here. I'm suffering here. And I can't handle it anymore. Mehdi, how do you deal with that mental anguish of indefinite detention? Well, I try to come up with different methods for my survival for each specific stage of time. At the moment, uh, I've been busy with uh, writing and uh, doing interviews, speaking out, uh, raising awareness. And I'm uh, not doing this because of, for a better change. I'm just doing it because I'm too desperate. I don't know what to do. It's so devastating to hear the story of a man whose life is just being wasted so unnecessarily, in my view, by our government. Let's go to a refugee lawyer to find out exactly what is going on here and why it's taken this long. Dr. Carolyn Graydon is the principal lawyer at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. She joins us now. Caroline, a lot of Australians were shocked to find out when Novak Djokovic was in the Park Hotel that other people who were stuck there had been in detention for a total of nine years, like Mehdi, who we just spoke to. How on earth has this happened? Well, it's uh, been a decade of the government's policies on offshore refugee processing. So these people were coming to Australia to exercise their human right to seek asylum, taken against their will to offshore processing centres in Papua New Guinea and Nauru and left to perish, essentially. And then after years, sometimes six, seven years, they became so unwell and were unable to access medical services in those uh, two countries, were transferred to Australia for urgent medical treatment And rather than receiving medical treatment, found themselves in indefinite arbitrary detention in either closed detention centres or in alternative places of detention like the Park Hotel. And their situation is the government hasn't granted them visas. And under Australian law, if you don't have a valid visa, we have a mandatory detention policy. And there's no limit to the time that a person can be held in immigration detention who doesn't hold a visa. And the only way they can hold a visa is if the minister personally intervenes and grants them a visa because they're not entitled to apply for any kind of visa in Australia because they passed a law to stop them doing that too. Carolyn, Mehdi, 
is a genuine refugee in that he has been formally recognised as being a refugee. What is he to do in this moment? What is actually the hold-up? Well, it's not a question of a hold-up. I mean, Australia signed the Refugee Convention. In fact, Australia was one of the key authors of the international human rights laws, including the Refugee Convention. So it's really distressing to see Australia turn its back on the whole international order of human rights, which it was a key architect of 50 or so years ago, 60, 70 years ago. And what we see now for Medi in particular and other refugees who've been found to be convention refugees means that they're protected persons and they're entitled to freedom, they're entitled to durable protection, to live in the community. And yet in Australia, because this government has taken the view that this group of people presents such a massive threat that they must be punitively punished for 10 years in order to deter any future people ever trying to seek asylum in Australia. We've got people who have been found to be refugees. They should not be held in any form of detention. How many other people are are stuck in hotel rooms like that with no windows and, and for how long? We think there's around 70 people in the same situation as Medi who've been brought from offshore processing centres for medical treatment to Australia and who are sitting either in hotels or they may be in our closed detention centres because we have this detention network across Australia of places which are in major cities but also in far-flung locations like Christmas Island. It is really shocking to see that in a country like Australia that claims to be democratic and relatively progressive on human rights, could have this black hole that allows a person to be held in an administrative form of detention for up to a decade or even longer because there is no end in the law to administrative detention. Why have they ended up in these tiny hotel rooms? So basically alternative places of detention or APODs, as they are known under the Migration Act, were regulated for in order to deal with the overflow of people from immigration detention centres, which had become overcrowded. And they were only ever intended to be a short-term fix for that overflow problem. Rather than just releasing people, which would have been the sensible solution, they passed regulations for certain hotels. It can be other places as well that can be alternative places of detention, such as hospitals or other locations. It's kind of morphed or been distorted now into like permanent places of detention, which is really wrong because obviously these tiny little hotel rooms are not equipped for long-term detention of people, which provides such little freedom of movement, lack of fresh air. And we've been really disturbed by the, the poor risk management of COVID risks. I mean, we saw back in September at the Park Hotel a COVID outbreak, which resulted in more than half of the people held in detention there actually getting COVID. And just before Christmas, when there was a fire that broke out at the Park Hotel and the non-detained quarantine guests, so-called, were all evacuated from the building, but the refugees and other asylum seekers weren't removed from the building. They were just taken to the basement, which again, compromised their safety and indicates the low value attached to their lives. Carolyn, the Minister for Immigration, Alex Hawke, made a decision in a matter of days in the case of Novak Djokovic. He can make a decision in this case as well. Why do you think he's chosen not to? It's just because the government is trying to maintain its strong borders narrative and policy and is willing to sacrifice the human rights of these refugees in order to achieve that. 
we've still got 106 men just abandoned and left in Papua New Guinea now and 106 other men who are stuck in the offshore processing centre in Nauru right now. And then we have all these other men held in held detention here in Australia. And then around 1,100 other people who were brought to Australia for medical treatment as well, who are in the community, who might be in a form of community detention or on these awful short-term visas, which every time they go to expire, the minister has to personally intervene to extend it. And if the minister doesn't, they face being taken back into closed detention again. So the consequences, the human misery arising and suffering arising out of these policies, it's just impossible to measure. And, and it has to end. You cannot go on like this. That was refugee lawyer Dr Caroline Graydon. And this is just clearly such an outrage, Jan. I've interviewed Peter Dutton about these kinds of decisions um, several times over the years. And, and the argument about stopping the boats and the deaths that were occurring at sea, that had some logic to it. Those deaths were tragic and it's good that they've stopped. But I just cannot see any logic or reasonable argument for locking up people for this long. I mean, letting Medi out of that hotel room in Melbourne and the other people locked up like him, it's not going to start a new big stream of boats. And even if it did, isn't that supposedly what their turn back policy is supposed to do is to stop that? Plus, they've had offers from countries like New Zealand to resettle more of these refugees and refuse them. So it just doesn't stack up. And it's particularly jarring when you've got a prime minister and an immigration minister who proudly call themselves Christians. This just goes against Jesus' teachings. Listener.